I think I'm ready to dive in. We are going to be looking at, um, next week I'll kind of have a, a special message on uh, Christmas in particular. Uh, this uh, week we're just going to be um, continuing along in Luke. Uh, you can open up your Bible if you have one to Luke chapter 12 verses 32 to 34. Raise your hand if you need a Bible, we'll get one to you. Um, Luke 12, 32 to 34. This is part two, really, of something I began uh, on this uh, text a couple weeks ago. So uh, I'll try to catch us back up in that after I read and, and pray. You all there? You ready? Nowadays with smartphones, you just type in Luke 12 and you're there in, a, in an instant, right? I'll give you a moment for those of you page turners. All right, Luke chapter 12, verse 32 to 34. It says this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Would you pray with me before we dive in? God, there are some in this room here this morning that need the gift of salvation. They need you to open eyes. Soften their heart. Awaken them to the reality of their desperate estate. And their need for mercy. Awaken them. Open their eyes to your provision of mercy and grace. A sure foundation in Jesus. There are others of us who perhaps, Lord, we have already received that gift, so to speak, and we have been saved by you, awakened by you, and we rejoice in it, usually. But perhaps today, God, we are struggling. We are in need of the gift of faith to be reinvigorated once more. That by grace, for your spirit, you would help us. You would strengthen us uh, for this sojourn, this pilgrimage to glory. The way gets hard. The sun goes dark. The air gets cold. And uh, Lord, we need you to be present with us. And so wherever, God, we find ourselves this morning, I pray that you would use our time in your word to save, to strengthen, to sustain, and to ensure that eternal life will be richly provided for us in the new heavens and new earth because of Jesus. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Um, okay, so as I mentioned, this is the second week uh, now that we've been in just these three little verses, but they are so amazing. Uh, they're worthy of much more. Uh, I'm just simply going to spend one more Sunday on them. Um, for those of you that weren't here, unfortunately, I can't go too much into what we did then, but I will say this, um, I really gave us three points and said last time, uh, I'm going to deal with the first two. We're going to come to the third today. The first two points looking through this text, first one was just simply looking at the comfort, uh, what I called the comfort there in verse 32, where Jesus comforts us with the fact that we have both a good shepherd, I said, and a prodigal father. 
We are a little flock under care of a good shepherd, and uh, he is our father who loves to give us the kingdom. He is a, remember we talked about the idea of him being even prodigal in terms of lavish, excessively gracious and giving, even you could say to a fault, although I don't know if it's possible for God to have faults. He just pours and pours and pours out upon his people, his children. That's the comfort that we saw. But then the second thing that I brought out is what I referred to as the call. And that's what we see there in the first part of verse 33. And so we have this idea that in light of the comfort, in light of this prodigal father, this good shepherd who is caring for us, Jesus says, okay, now sit in that, live it up, love it, you know, rest and, 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 and just kind of drink it in. No, he actually says, okay, now in light of that, Sell everything you have and go give your life. Spend your life for the poor, the needy, the broken, the lost. There's this radical call in light of the comfort of the gospel, the comfort of these promises that we have. Go and live in a crazy way. For the sake of others, stop worrying about your needs, uh, getting all your ducks in a row and, and, and spend your life worrying, so to speak, anxious for the burdens of others. Well, now this morning we come to the third point, which we shall spend the whole morning on what I would call now the capacity. So the comfort, the call now, the capacity. I'm sure you don't have any idea what I mean by this, uh, but I trust that by the end you will. What I'm really referring to here, and I think it will become plain in time, is this idea of reward in heaven. Okay, this idea of reward in heaven. This is the subject that we kind of see Jesus dealing with uh, next in our text as we kind of follow along with him in verse 33. I want you to look at that. Uh, in whole now. He says this, sell your possessions and give to the needy. And then we stop and we ask, why? For what reason? Why in the world would I want to do that? Okay, I get that the Father's taking care of me, but I kind of still like all my stuff. Why would I take Jesus up on this call and live in a radical way for the needs of others? Well, this is the sort of thing he goes on to explain. Provide yourselves, he says, with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. In other words, as you rest in and as you experience the comfort of God and then you try to answer, live your life kind of in answer of the call of God, what you will be doing is in fact storing up treasure for yourself in heaven. Or in other words, gaining in some sense this idea of heavenly reward. Now, uh, if you are anything like me, the idea of reward in heaven is kind of this foggy, confusing, far off kind of concept that really doesn't have much traction in your heart. It just kind of feels like, ah, okay, you know, we comfort ourselves with the idea that uh, we'll know more about it when we get there. We'll get it then. Like, are we going to be standing on podiums? Like, I kind of am here. This person's there. Are we going to be given, like, plots of land? Are we going to, what's it going to be like? We get confused about what's even involved, right? How does this thing work? And one of the problems with that confusion, if we don't press in and try to learn what the scriptures had to say about it, is, is that it, it won't gain any traction in our heart. And therefore, it won't start to make any, any, any impact on our lives, and what Jesus is saying in our text, it seems to me, is that one of the critical, fundamental, motivating factors for radical, self-sacrificing Christian obedience and life lifestyle is this idea of reward in heaven. This treasure that is there, this idea that we are going to receive back from the Lord in some way, in abundance. 
if we don't have a, an idea of how that works or any concept of it, if it has no teeth, if it has no traction, it won't make any impact. And we shouldn't be surprised then when living like this, giving our things to the needy and the poor, opening our hands to whoever has need, that sort of lifestyle, we, we shouldn't be surprised that we don't see that working its way out in our life. We don't have the motivation that Jesus gives in place. So all of that to say, I thought that a Sunday spent on this topic in particular of this idea of reward in heaven would be valuable for us. So that's really what we're going to do. I will uh, say one thing here. I wanted to make one observation just in the transition between uh, point two, this idea of the call to now the capacity, this idea of reward in heaven. I, I wanted to say at least one thing um, that I fear would otherwise go unnoticed and shouldn't. And that is this. Um, Jesus is loving us well here. I want you to hear that. That Jesus, when he says, sell all your stuff and give to the poor and the needy. He is loving you and I well. I feel like that needs to be pointed out because our typical response when we hear that sort of call, that sort of instruction is not, oh, Jesus, thank you. That sounds awesome. It's more like it sounds threatening. It sounds a little bit concerning, a little bit troubling. We're kind of going, Jesus, what's your angle, man? What are you trying to do to me? It doesn't sound loving at first read, right? We read that and we kind of go, okay, I get how that's loving for the needy and the poor because they're getting all my stuff. But how is that loving for me? It feels like I'm left out in the cold with nothing here. But hopefully if we read his words carefully, we recognize That's not the right interpretation at all, that Jesus is, in fact, loving us well, that he does, in fact, have our best in mind. Simply put, what Jesus is after in yours and my life with this instruction um, is really to keep us from the disaster that we saw back up in verse 21 of Luke 12. Remember when he's telling the parable about the guy who's building bigger and bigger barns to store up all of his stuff and he's got more and more and more and more and then it's time to die. And God says, you fool, what have you done? You've stored up all this stuff for yourself, but you are poor before me. You have no capital in the economy of heaven. None. Man on earth, you had it all. In heaven, you are destitute. And Jesus wants to keep us from that sort of disaster. Wasting our lives. Pursuit of ourselves. Our comforts. And finding at the end of it, nothing to our name. This really is the point of his discussion here in our text when he's talking about thieves and moths. He's wanting to move us from vain and vulnerable treasure to true and lasting treasure. So he says, listen, stop storing up your treasure here. Stop stop it with the money bags piling up here where thieves can take and moths can corrupt. He wants to move us from, from vulnerable to eternal. From unstable to secure. If I could say something about moths for a moment. Because uh, I, I feel like I had a personal encounter that has forever changed the way I will read the statement that Jesus makes. I get that thieves are kind of, you know, they're, an inti- they're a threat to my treasure. Right? They are an intimidating uh, threat to what I love. A thief, uh, they, they kind of got masks on. They got muscles. If they don't have muscles, they got guns. They could come in, take my stuff, and disappear into the night. Well, that's a legitimate concern that we would have when it comes to our earthly goods and earthly treasures. But I always read this when I was kind of like, moths? 
Like really, they made the list of significant enemies, you know, for yours and my treasure. I, I look at moths and I think, you know, they're just like little fluttering, cute kind of insects, right? And if you don't like a moth in your house, have you ever, have you ever seen one fluttering about? Honest, forgive me if this is animal cruelty, but if you don't want it there, they fly so slow, you just get hit it out of there and poof, it's like a, it's like a little poof of dust and they're gone, right? They're almost like nothing. I don't think I respected moths like I should until we finally had some in our house. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fresh. I'm fresh out of the war with these things, guys. So this is why it's on my mind. <laughs> they first showed up in our pantry. And, uh, you know, at first it's like, oh, okay, no big deal. I'll just vacuum the, the few that are in there up. You know, no problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, on your more uh, courteous, uh, environmentally friendly days or whatever, maybe you scoop it in your hand and you take it with your daughters outside and release it. Be free. You know, that sort of a thing. We'll miss you. And Bella's crying or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but it wasn't. It wasn't a matter of uh, days, weeks before all of a sudden it's like this is getting out of control. They are now filling our pantry. They are in our food. I'm opening up cereal and there's like little larvae coming. You're going like, what do we do about this? So finally it came to, okay, we're going to take half of our stuff in this pantry and we've got to throw it all away. That's what it's going to take. All right, fine. We, all right, we got rid of them. And I kid you not, after we got rid of them from our pantry, uh, I noticed one in our uh, coat closet. And where I noticed one, all of a sudden I noticed 10, then I noticed 20. Then before I know it, I'm just going, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of these things. I was talking, I'm going, hey, you stay in the coat closet, give us the rest of the house. I'm starting to barter with the moths. Like, we're not going to get rid of these things. Maybe I can get rent from them or something and I can afford living around here. That sort of idea. That's when you know that you're in trouble. But the only reason I finally kind of managed to mount a counterattack was because my parents were coming into town for Thanksgiving and having a, a closet full of moths is embarrassing. So pulled it all out, sprayed, washed, you know, threw stuff away, put stuff in a sack and let it get hot so hopefully eggs die and all those sort of things. It was crazy. I think finally we're moth-free, but I'm forever traumatized and I will forever... <laughs> Read this text with respect for moths. And now I see moths outside, <laughs> like fluttering by the light or whatever, and I no longer think it's cute. Now I imagine them having sinister intent. They're all trying to get into my house to get at who knows what. But I'm joking, but here's the point. Here's the point. These things are little. If you don't want them, you just hit them out of the sky, poof, they're gone. And yet they can destroy your treasure if your treasure is here. The point that Jesus is making is if something as as insignificant and tiny and small as a moth can get at your treasure, you better rethink what it is that you are treasuring. It's unstable. It's vain, it's foolish. And so Jesus, as we transition from the call to this idea of the capacity and reward in heaven, is trying to get us to rethink. He is loving us well. He said, guys, moths can get at that. Let's go somewhere that they can't. Let's set our hearts somewhere that they can't. So that's where I want to go with you now, the capacity. Let's uh, talk about the idea of treasure or reward in heaven now. I've got four basic propositions that I want to give to you. You'll see them there on your handout regarding this idea of reward in heaven. Uh, and I'm going to kind of build each one of them out with biblical support as we go. Again, we're just kind of doing a deep dive into this concept uh, for the rest of our time together this morning. Uh, proposition number one, I would put like this. There will be reward given in heaven. 
That's really the first thing that needs to be said. It obviously is the most simple of what I will be giving you. Um, but nonetheless, we need to start there. There will be reward given in heaven. This is the clear implication of Jesus' words in our text. His whole logic turns on this idea. Sell and give now. Why? Because you will be rewarded then. There is a reward. There is reward that will be given in heaven. If I were to put uh, maybe uh, another text on it for us to consider, um, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8 is a good one. 2 Timothy seems to be the, the last epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote. And um, he's kind of contemplating, he's aware that uh, the end is near for him. And this is what he has to say. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Read, reward. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The simple idea here is this, the Christian will be rewarded. Indeed, all, all in Christ. Uh, that's what's so awesome about this is Paul knows that we're likely to reading it. Oh, sure, Paul gets a crown of righteousness. Sure, Paul's going to get the award. You know, whatever, when he shows up before God, God's going to pat him on the back. But me? Paul says, yeah. Look at, did you notice that? He will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all you and I who have loved his appearing. You love Jesus. You celebrated Christmas. You love that he came. You delight in that. You long for his return. Award. Reward on that day. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's a most critical point. You will not. You will not be able to sustain a life of abandon to the kingdom, a life of generosity to the poor and lowly, a life of love for neighbor and enemy alike, if you do not see this reward as an impending reality. Did you hear that? That's what sustains the Apostle Paul. That's why the whole thing began. What does he say? My life is being poured out as a drink offering. I think I highlighted that a few weeks back, but I can never remember what I actually say and what I cut out. It's life being poured out as a drink offering. What sustains the outpouring of this man's life? Man, the impending reality of reward in heaven. A crown of righteousness, the joy that he will have in the presence of his Father and Savior. It was so real to him, so present even now to him, it would seem, by faith, just pour his life out in view of it. Always looking to it. Nobody lives their life like this here and now unless they are aware that there is something even greater coming for them there and then. That's, I think, the logic. That's the implication here. If I were to give you maybe one more example, I thought of Moses here as he's described in Hebrews 11. Listen to this, verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was... Looking to the reward. You hear that? Moses had the whole world at his disposal. He could be in in Pharaoh's courts on top of the world. But he said, nah, I'd rather go with with the slaves, with the ones who are kind of getting the bricks and doing the work and getting whipped and lashed. I'd rather go with them. Why? Because he was looking to the reward. He saw past the present moment and all that Egypt had to offer into the future to all that God would have to offer. Yahweh, the promised land and 
eternal life, ultimately in the new heavens, new earth. So the bottom line is this. If our Christianity has little power, if we find uh, in our hearts little love for the broken, the lost, the poor, the needy, if we find that our hands, our fingers, we're so prone to kind of tighten around what we have, if we find ourselves uh, orienting our lives around our own comforts, our own security, our own kind of pleasures here and now, what that's an indication of is that we, unlike Paul, unlike Moses, are not looking to the reward, but have lost sight of it. Lost sight of this very first proposition I'm holding out to you, and that is that there will be reward in heaven. Now, proposition number two, I would give you... Um, now, put it like this. This reward will vary in degree. So there will be reward given in heaven, but this reward will vary in degree. In other words, all who are in Christ will be rewarded on the day of judgment, but not all will be rewarded in quite the same way or to quite the same degree. Again, I would say that this is clearly implied in the words of our text, and we need to let that land on us a little bit and, and move us. Jesus seems to be saying, if you give, if you live in this way, you will be storing up things for yourself in heaven. In other words, uh, there's going to be a difference between the guy who, 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 who maybe every now and then when he has radical abundance uh, gives a little bit but maintains everything for himself that he needs and all of his comforts and all of his stuff. There's going to be a, a, a difference between that, uh, that Christian, so to speak, and then this guy over here who takes Jesus up on it in radical ways and loves others even to his own hurt. If there's not a difference, his, his, his exhortation to us falls flat. One of the significant motivating factors is as you open your hand, as you release your treasure to others, there's amazing stuff coming for you there. And so the implication is those who open their hands more and entrusting the Father to provide and all that sort of stuff, there will be more than those who kind of are always kind of hedging their, their bets and making sure that they're safe and have what they need in case the Father doesn't come through and whatever else. Now, we live in a day and age, um, I think, that doesn't like this idea, right? We, we don't like the idea of uh, uh, difference or even competition and things. And Someone's a winner, someone's a loser, someone's better. Uh, we, we don't like the idea of varying degrees. It, for us, it might even rub against uh, our notion of what heaven even is. I'll try to explain that, but think about it with me in our culture, um, that is where I believe the, the whole phenomenon of um, the uh, participation trophy. <laughs> you know this, this kind of infamous thing that's now going around? And he, he, I mean, people are debating it, but the idea is uh, just for showing up, just for being a part, you will get a, a, a medal or a trophy and maybe on it they'll, they'll write something cute. I actually looked up some of these <laughs> You'll get on it something that says like, "Hey, if you had fun, you won." You know, I was like, man, I, I, I think I see where they're going with this, and I'll, I'll share with you that in a moment why I, I can understand. But the competitor in me just, you know, despises the idea. I, I, I spent ten years of my life um, playing tennis training, sweating, throwing up, even in the Arizona sun, you know, just a day in, day out. If I got the snot kicked out of me on the court, and then you hand me a little little trophy, says something cute on it to make me feel good, I don't feel good. I feel mocked. I feel ridiculed, right? Don't coddle me. Let me earn it. Let me live for it. Let me, you, you may coddle me. My, my coach is going to whoop me, <laughs> Let me work. Let me move. Let me, let me grind. Let me earn the trophy. Let me earn the place, right? 
But our, our, our culture doesn't like to say that one is better than another. We're scared of bruising ego or whatever it may be. Now, I think in my more charitable moments, I understand the heart behind it. And I even see some gospel resemblance. Because uh, really, I think what we don't want to have happen is that a person feels like they are valued or significant based upon how they perform. Like, aha, okay, if you perform well, we love you. If you don't, I'm sorry, we don't. And as a gospel-believing Christian, I can get behind that. Because I, I, ultimately, we base our lives on that reality, right? That I will stand before God on Judgment Day and be judged ultimately at a fundamental level, not on the basis of my own merits, not on the basis of my own performance, not on my own ability to execute the Christian ethic to a T, but on Christ's righteousness, on his sacrifice for me, and then his life on my behalf. Like that's what will get me through. It's just simply by participating, you could say, in him by faith. I'm saved. And I'm awarded eternal life forever. We believe that in this church. You are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. But, but, running alongside that reality in the scriptures, and it's really interesting, we need to say that there is also some sense that while all in Christ will be saved and rewarded on that day, not all will be rewarded to the same degree. That is a clear biblical teaching. In fact, what we need to understand is that often, as the scriptures describe it, eternal salvation, heavenly reward, are almost two separate categories. Let me explain. I think one of the clearest places that I could try to show you this is in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15, because Paul brings together both categories here. He says, yes, just for participating in Christ, trophy. But he says, those who have lived a Luke 12, 33 kind of lifestyle, a little bit more. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given to me, this is Paul talking again. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid. And here he goes, which is Christ Jesus. He is the foundation. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. He's talking about Christians here. Just be clear. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Did you hear that? You're hearing the distinction, you're hearing the categorical distinctions going on here. When you come to faith in Christ, there is a foundation laid. Jesus Christ, He is the only foundation. His righteousness, that's my only hope. You don't have that? Listen, there's no hope. Foundation in Jesus. There is your, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, eternal salvation. But then, the discussion shifts to the subject of heavenly reward. And here Paul starts talking about not the foundation anymore, but what we build upon it. In particular, in his image, what we build upon it with. He says, all of you take care what you're building upon that foundation that is Jesus Christ. 
Are you going to build with gold and silver and precious stones? Are you going to build with wood, hay, straw? What's it going to be? Those who live the Luke 12, 33 kind of lifestyle, those who spend themselves for the poor, those who, who love enemy and, and, and turn the other cheek, those who, who, who love others to their own hurt and trust for God and looking to the reward on that day are building in those moments with gold, silver, precious stone. And there will be a reward on the day of judgment. But those who, when life gets tough, and when people hurt, or when that crazy uncle is calling again for money, kind of hang up, you don't answer the phone, hit delete, whatever it is, we don't want to know. Those who kind of close their hands and live for themselves, maybe though they are Christian, and, 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 and on the whole they are following Jesus, but they kind of, kind of hedge around a lot, and they fall back a lot. But the building with... Wood and hay and stubble. And he says, the day's not going to be as, as abundantly provided for you, it might say. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about what that means. He uses the word suffer loss, which is powerful. I don't think in any way that means that what Revelation has to say, that God wipes away every tear, will be not true for that individual. But I'll explain a little bit in a little bit what I think it does mean. Either way, Paul is asking, which one is it going to be for you? Assuming that both are Christian, the foundation is still there. Uh, he himself will be saved, he says. Uh, all will be saved, but the rewards on the last day are going to be different. Which one is it going to be for you? There's a difference here. And then what we see really is that this idea of various degrees of reward is a clear teaching throughout Scripture. And it stands as the basis for a lot of Jesus' ethical teaching. I want to show you this from a few places, even in Luke's Gospel and uh, beyond. We've already seen this. and You could just listen, and I'm not going to spend much time on, on these texts. I just simply want to show you a little bit more of this so you can come back to it if you want. Maybe jot down the, the verses. But we saw this earlier, actually, in Luke 6, verses 32 to 35, when we were there, oh, I don't know, probably a year ago. <laughs> That's probably no exaggeration. Uh, if you love those who love you, Jesus says, what benefit is that? To you, for even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Why, Jesus? Because your reward will be Great. In other words, to the, 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 the great, to the greater extent, or the greater extent to which you love your enemies, give to a fault, lend to those expecting nothing in return, to the, the, the greater extent to which you live in that way, you can actually expect greater reward from your Father on that day in heaven. That's the logic. That should be motivating us in some Way, because that's what Jesus often grounds his ethic in. But we actually will see this idea again later in Luke, a couple chapters uh, from Luke 12, Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. Jesus says this, when you give a dinner or a banquet, you might let this inform your Christmas celebration. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. That's how most of us operate in our relationships. I don't want to invite that person over again. When are they ever going to reciprocate? Jesus says, don't invite the reciprocators. If you care about the eternal economics he goes on and says this, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. On the last day, don't look to get your, your tit for tat now. 
Instead, look to get it from God on that day. There's an amazing proverb, I think, that's being invoked here. Proverbs 19.17. It's incredible. Uh, the author of Proverbs says this. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Did you hear that? Lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. So when you open up your hand to the poor, you are not simply lending to the poor. You are lending to the Lord and the Lord never fails to return with, uh, you could say, um, unimaginable interest. And of course, there are more statements that we could look to that would, again, continue to develop this idea that, that rewards will be given in different degrees based upon our faithful obedience or not. But here's a few more. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. You even give a glass of water. God's marking that down. I saw that. Matthew 10, 42. Or Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Whoever sows sparingly. Paul really just shifts the metaphor from building now to sowing. Uh, And he says this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Or 2 John 1, 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Different degrees in one way or another. Based upon faithful obedience, not taking away our participation trophy, not losing our salvation, but something more. It's the clear teaching of Scripture. I hope you see that. Let me build out a little bit more on this idea as we look at proposition number three now. Proposition number three, I'd put like this. The ultimate reward is God himself. Self. The ultimate reward is God himself. This is perhaps the most important uh, uh, statement I'm going to make about uh, heavenly reward. And it is perhaps also the least clear, at least in our text originally uh, back in Luke 12. If we look at our text there, like verse 33 uh, around there, we, we, we actually would kind of think that what we are getting in heaven is not God, but stuff just better stuff uh, like the language used there if you notice sell your possessions give to the needy provide yourselves with what money bags money bags and treasure i mean it's christmas time so i hear money bags and i can't help but think of scrooge right you like christmas carol i love that story but it's like the whole thing is, you know, this guy who is, is so infatuated with his money bags. Everything is about the, the profit margins and the bottom line and making sure I get mine and I get more than even mine. And I hurt even those uh, that don't have much so that I can get more for me. That was what it was all about. Life was all about money bags. And now we come here, we go, wait. Is Jesus saying my life should be about money bags? It's just maybe I give a, a, a few things, you know, here now to the poor, but man, I'm going to get seriously more. I'm going to get some serious return on that investment in the future. Sitting on mounds of cash. Maybe I was, you know, hitchhiking on earth. I'll be rolling in a, you know, Tesla or whatever in heaven. Is that what this means? There's actually a lot I wish I could have done here, but simple answer is No. Though I think there is going to be a material sense to the reward, the material is not the ultimate. The material, as it was intended to be, always connects us to the heart of the Father, the one who made it, the Creator, the one who made us. And so, in heaven, what we find when we consider this idea of uh, of pursuing heavenly reward, it's not so much about getting more of God's stuff, as much as it is about getting more of God's heart, more of God himself. Like he is yours and my ultimate 
reward. Let me show you this. This is why perhaps uh, we read of the 24 elders in Revelation 4.10 around the throne of heaven. What are they doing? They're casting their crowns down at the feet of God. What does that say? It's okay, we may have authority, like Jesus says to the disciples. Man, I will set you over cities. I will set you on thrones. I will this or that. Because you did X, Y, and Z, there will be perhaps some sense of of, of even material uh, reward or wealth or whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, that's not what matters. What matters is, man, I get front row seats to God. And I get to take this crown and go, not me, but you. Any authority, anything I have. The only reason why it's valuable is because I have you. Here's the crown. You're the king of kings. You're the Lord of lords. This is why uh, when Jesus is talking about judgment day, he describes it like this. He says, man, you're going to come and hopefully those of you who are following after Jesus, you will hear God say, well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the what? How does he describe what heaven is all about? Enter into the joy of your master. Yeah, okay, maybe you're going to be set over much now because you were faithful with little, whatever the much means, material or physically in the new heavens, new earth. But the, the, the essence, the ultimate point of it all is you get to enter into the joy of your master. There's this relationship of joy that you have with the Father. No, you spent your life in love for him and he is well pleased. That's the fullness. That's the reward. More than anything else. We could look at Psalm 73, 25 and 26, where the psalmist cries out, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You hear that? Whom have I in heaven but you? Will you have stuff in heaven? Probably. A lot better than here. Man, in my father's house, there are many mansions where I'll take... Yeah, there's going to be... You will have things, but your ultimate possession is Yahweh, is God, is knowing Him in an intimate way. He is the ultimate reward. Whom have I in heaven but you? You are my portion. You are my inheritance. The amazing thing is, is in Deuteronomy, God would say, not just uh, what the psalmist says here, that, that God is our inheritance. God would say, you are my inheritance. You are my portion. Intimacy, relationship. That's the ultimate reward. That's why Paul would say, just to give you one more, Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain what? Christ. (laughs) Do you hear that? Knowing him, gaining him. Why count all things as loss? Why live the radical Christian lifestyle? Set that cross firmly on your back and follow Him to glory. Why do that? Because to know Him is better than life. Knowing Him is the treasure. It is the gain of this eternal reward. But now, and here's really the rub, we need to ask, how does proposition number three relate back to proposition number two? If knowing God is the ultimate reward, what does it mean that this reward will vary in degree? You with me on that? If knowing God is the ultimate reward, what does it mean that this reward will vary in degree? And here we finally come, if you were wondering, to why I called this The capacity. I think 
that if you wrestle and fight by faith to live a life of obedience now, even selling your stuff, living radically for the poor, the needy, the broken, the lost, that they may know him, living for his kingdom, advance. I think that if you live that kind of life now, what you are actually doing is enlarging your capacity for future joy in him when you see him face to face on that day. Like, on that day, because of your faithful obedience now, you will have the capacity, I think, for deeper experience of his pleasure, of his approval. You will have deeper appreciation for his love. You will be able, you will be able to contain more, I would say. I'll give you an illustration in a moment to help make sense of this, but Jonathan Edwards is also brilliant on this idea. In his sermon on Romans 2.10, he makes this point, and I, I think it's important because I want you to hear this. What he says is, listen, in heaven, don't be worried. All will be full. All will be full. But some will have capacity for more. All will be satisfied. But some will hold more of God. More of his pleasure, more of his joy. The way that he puts it in particular is this. Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. Are you with me so far? Now, I tried my best to come up with, okay, I believe this with all my heart. How can I illustrate this for us so we can start to get our, 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 our hearts wrapped around it? Here's my best attempt, and I only have a couple minutes to do it. Um, imagine that you are a young man. Um, you hope to get married someday, and man, you are fighting. You are fighting for purity. You are holding, you are holding it down for your future bride. You haven't even met her yet. You don't know where she is, but you are just, now I want to keep myself pure for her, for that day. And so, man, this guy could have had opportunity. In this day and age, it's, it's coming at us from every angle. TV, internet, uh, girls at school, whatever it is. He could have had all these opportunities to abort on that mission. And instead, he stayed true. He said, no, I, no, this is, this is fleeting. This is not where I want to invest myself. I will regret it. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to hold on. That's guy number one. Now, here's guy number two. And he goes, yeah, okay, sure, someday I hope I get married. That'd be great. I mean, it would be nice. Every day, you know, somebody's got to settle down sometime. But why would I withhold from myself the pleasure of this or that now? I'll get married then. I'll get what I need then. And so he goes out and forgive my language here, but he he samples, you know, all the, the, the different flavors. He's out with this or that girl and this different girl every day. He's on the internet. He doesn't withhold himself. But then, yeah, sure, he comes and, you know, 10 years go by after college and he's going, gosh, I can't keep living like a crazy, you know, college kid. I got to settle down. And you, I guess you're decent enough and gets married. Now, let me ask you the question. This is really the point. Who do you think will have greater capacity for joy in the marital union on that night? Who do you think will have greater capacity to enjoy that evening and that marriage and that union? Don't hear me say that, for goodness sake, we've all been all over the place. we're, we're, We're sinners. Don't hear me say that it's over for this brother, anything like that. But do hear me say that it's not going to be the same. And I think that's kind of the idea that Jesus is at here. He, he is after here. He's kind of saying, listen, in our text, this idea of reward and this idea of something greater there is like, listen, if we, in obedience to the Father, trusting that He will care, that we have a shepherd, 
that he is over us, that he's going to provide, that he's going to give us what we need. If we live radical lives trusting him, we know what's going to happen on that day. Our capacity for joy will be greater. We will get there. We'll go, I knew it. I knew you would come through. I knew it would be gain to count all of the earthly stuff as loss, to know this moment. I knew it. And the joy that you will be able to experience in that moment will be greater than the person who, every time life got hard, kind of, uh, I don't know if God's really going to show up. Maybe I'll take a little bit of the world, a little bit of God too. Right? You, feel, you feeling me? The capacity will be greater. So here's what I want us to see more than anything, brothers and sisters. That's that when you open your hand in love for the poor and needy, when you give a glass of water to the thirsty, even though you maybe wanted that water, when you wash the dishes at your house with the heart of a servant, even though you're like, man, I just want to sit down on the couch Every little thing that is done with a view to the eternal reward and all that Christ has done for you, secured for you, and, and with faith that the Father will care for your needs so you are free to care for others. Every time you do that, you want to know what you're doing? You're picking up a shovel and you're digging a little bit more dirt out of the well that will one day be filled when you stand before God. It gets a little deeper. It can hold a little bit more. I hope that to some degree, it gives an image in your mind, motivates, traction, what we're after, why we're doing what we're doing. But now, let me say, and this is where we'll close, and don't worry, I'm, I'm almost done. One last thing, proposition number four. Something of the future reward can be enjoyed even now. Up to this point, I've simply talked about this reward as if it's been confined to the future, but what I want you to realize is that in some ways it breaks into the present even here this morning. What Jesus is not saying back in our text is, um, what Jesus is not saying uh, is like, hey, listen, your life is going to be horrible. Yes, you are going to be on the streets. Yes, you're going to be miserable. But hang on, it's going to get awesome. He's not saying if you suffer and deal with all the junk now, it's going to be great there. This life, you're going to be miserable. No, he's not saying that, actually. Physically, monetarily, possibly, sure. But you want to know the craziest thing is one of the fruits of the Spirit, or a couple of the fruits of the Spirit, if we just look at them, joy, Peace? Like if I'm reading that, I'm going, oh my goodness. We actually have access, not just to something later, but now. That the world doesn't know anything about. Joy and peace at a deeper level. Again, not just in heaven, but breaking into the present, in the spirit, in Christ, now. And I would wager though this is not always our experience, right? That we've experienced this sort of thing. That when we've kind of stood on that line and we go, gosh darn it, I know that Jesus wants me to to give and to live radical, but I don't want to love that person. Or I don't want to give right now. I would rather make this all about me. But we obey him. I know you got me. I know you want me. Give me strength. Let's go. I'm telling you, Haven't you experienced the joy, the peace, the pleasure of your father in those moments? She's go, wow, I didn't realize on the other side of that kind of initial suffering was so much joy. Like it's almost as if a door for fellowship opens with him in those moments as we press in in obedience right then and there. So the idea that I want to leave you with really is this for the Christian. It is not a lose-win situation. Like, ah, it's going to suck. No, it'll be, I should probably shouldn't say that in church. But it'll be great later. It's actually, it's going to be amazing now. But it's just going to be even more amazing later. 
When we lay down our lives in love for others, not only are we enlarging our capacity for future joy in God, we are also granted access to some of that joy here and now. Or, in other words, when we lay down our lives in love for others, we are not merely digging out the well which, we sh- which shall be filled someday. We are drinking from it and being filled even today. Let's pray. God, my hope is that the heavenly reward will move us. We are such here and now folks. Everything is about here and now. The immediate, how we're feeling, what we want and whether we can get it soon. And you're trying to lift our eyes. And the crazy thing is, as you lift our eyes and as we set our hope there, we also find ourselves strangely at peace and filled even now. So Jesus, I pray. I pray that you would lift our eyes as we sing. You would lift our eyes to what's coming and you would fill our cups. However big, small they may be in this present moment, let us dig them a little deeper. Let us drink in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.